We are entering now the second part of the Heidelberg Catechism. There's a, a heading over Lord's Day 5, Our Deliverance. Question 12. Since, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that His justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment, either by ourselves or through another. Can we by ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God. That's as far as Lord's Day 5 goes. In response to the preaching, we will sing about the deliverer and mediator provided for us by God. Hymn 3, stanzas 3 and 5. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we move along in the catechism, we find ourselves transitioning out of part one and into part two of the catechism. As you may know, the catechism has three basic parts, our sin and misery, it's part one, our deliverance, and the third part, our thankfulness. And it's Noteworthy that out of the 52 Lord's Days that we have, only three are spent on our sin and misery, while 27 Lord's Days are spent discussing our deliverance. Three Lord's Days on the, the greatest problem facing the human race, on the root of all our troubles in this world, sin. And then 27 Lord's Days on the only solution to this problem, Jesus Christ, the Savior. The Catechism does it this way with that kind of ratio because that's what the Bible does. The Bible is always straightforward about our sin and guilt and misery. And the Bible never lets us forget that reality, but it always directs our attention to what God is doing about that problem, specifically what He's doing about it in Christ. Jesus gets the spotlight in Scripture. Never forget our sinfulness, but always give full attention to the Lord Jesus. That's the accent that we all need every day again. So, here in Lord's Day 5, the Catechism summarizes where we're at with our sin problem, 
and what needs to happen to resolve it. You and I already know Jesus Christ is the answer, but before we jump to that solution, it's helpful with the catechism to see what is not able to help us, what can't be part of the solution. To embrace Jesus Christ as the only comfort in life and in death, we need to also be convinced that there is no other possible Savior. And so I proclaim to you this word of the Lord, our deliverance comes from God alone. We'll see man's dead end and then God's trailblazer. Our deliverance comes from God alone. Well, by the end of Lord's Day 4, as we saw last week when our brother Daniel Shin was preaching, we already confessed that our rebellion in Adam, that original rebellion, plus our everyday sins that you and I commit, those things together bring upon our heads God's punishment. We deserve His wrath. We deserve it to be poured out on us both in this life and even forever. Question 12 of Lord's Day 5 reminds us of this. Since, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal, that just means in the bounds of time, temporal and eternal, outside the bounds of time, temporal and eternal punishment. We deserve that. But then it goes on to ask, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? That's an important and a deep question. We're not just interested in escaping the punishment. We want to again be received into favor. And there's really a, a difference between those, those two things. Escaping punishment, for example, in the case of a convicted criminal, would mean that for some reason that criminal doesn't have to spend time in jail. He's a criminal, but he somehow gets released. And this actually does happen from time to time. When a prison sentence, for example, gets commuted, that's the word that's used, something President Trump did recently. Every president has a certain privilege to grant the commuting of prison sentences for criminals when the president feels there's some kind of justification for that. So when the president, as President Trump did, when he commutes uh, a prison sentence, then the criminal record stays in place. That's, he, that person's still a convicted felon. He does not get back the civil rights that he lost upon his conviction, but he does not have to spend time in jail. So there's some relief from the punishment, but he's still a convicted criminal. Well, it so happens that the President of the United States has another special privilege, and that is to grant full pardon to a convicted criminal. A full pardon goes further than commuting a sentence, for it actually clears the convict's record and restores the person's civil rights. A person can vote again. That person can run for office. And President Trump recently granted a pardon to more than 70 individuals who either were convicted or in the process of undergoing trials who were likely to be convicted 
And it's this idea of a presidential pardon that gets us much closer to what we're asking of God here in Lord's Day 5. We don't want to avoid, just to avoid prison, we don't just want to avoid hell, but we also want to get into heaven. We want to be where God is. Well, let's unpack that a little bit more. For when we talk about heaven, heaven can mean different things to different people. The Catechism speaks actually not about heaven directly, but it mentions that we desire to be received into favor, God's favor. That's a reference to the situation as it was in the Garden of Eden when God had established with Adam and Eve a relationship of love as creator to creatures. He loved the son and daughter he had created, and they loved him back with a heart of love and, and obedience. They were happy to live in his garden. They were happy to work in his garden, and they were thrilled when God would come around in the cool of the day and talk with them, as Genesis says. This is what the true child of God wants. This is favor. This is a relationship, a dialogue, an actual back and forth interchange. A child of God wants that, wants that peace, that relationship, craves it, misses it when it's got, gone. This is actually heaven. Is that what, what you want, beloved? Do you crave the interaction, the fellowship with your Creator? Because that's what Jesus brings. Hell is when we only experience God's burning fury on account of our sin. But heaven is when we fully experience God's beautiful fellowship. Condemned sinners certainly can experience hell on earth already now. But the good news is that redeemed sinners like you and me, we certainly experience heaven on earth, the beginning of heaven on earth already now. The pardon that, that Jesus brings restores God's favor to us, to convicted felons like you and me. And that, that feeling of being at peace with God, that's the best feeling in the world, isn't it? Things are okay between my Creator and me. That's what we're after, restored, to be restored to God's favor. But then there's this question that the catechism brings up. Maybe, maybe we can get to that point without Jesus. This is always a niggling question in the human heart that somehow we could perhaps get back to God, get to heaven on our own by ourselves, or at least with some contribution on our part. We know that God's justice needs to be satisfied in some way. We know that God never lies. So when He announced, as He did back in Eden, that the day we rebel would rebel against Him, on that day we would surely die. That's our penalty, death. We, we have to bring that penalty to God. And that is a mountain to climb, isn't it? The Bible calls this a debt we owe or 
a payment we owe to God. Question 13 asks then, can we ourselves make this payment? Can we somehow give to God the equivalent of our death so that His justice is satisfied and we're off the hook? Well, that doesn't seem very likely, just on the surface of things. For how can we give our life and still remain alive? How can we die as punishment for sin and then somehow come back to life and experience peace and joy with God? What, what human can do that? And there's actually more to this payment that we owe and this debt that we owe, which makes the situation much worse. We not only have to die for that act of rebellion, but even if we could somehow come back to life again, we would still need to give to God our original obedience, that obedience that He asked of us from the very beginning. In other words, coming back from, from the dead, we would have to be totally free of sin and all corruption. We would have to be able to live with God as He created us to live with Him in holiness and righteousness. To say it really, really plainly, we humans owe to God two things. The first thing we owe is to pay death for our rebellion in the Garden of Eden. And the second thing we owe is the payment of loyal obedience to our King. We have to obey all of His instruction. That was God's original plan for us. Can we do this, asks the Catechism. Can we pay this debt? Well, we might as well ask the prophet Isaiah the same question. Can God's people set aside their sin and somehow render perfect obedience to God? We're going to look at Isaiah 59 for a few moments now because Isaiah was very clear-headed about this matter. You might recall that already in chapter 6, Isaiah realized that he himself was a man of unclean lips and that he dwelt among a people of unclean lips. He cried out to God about that. And now in chapter 59, which we read, he describes the sinful nature of God's people as a whole. And he starts out in verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. When you stand back and look at verses 2 through 12, or 2 through 8 at least, it's a description of the nature of Israel. What's going on in the nation and in their hearts? Verse 7, their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. No justice is in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one treads on them, who treads on them knows peace. Isaiah is describing God's people. He's describing the church. It reminds you of Genesis 6, verse 5, which we quoted a, a couple of weeks ago, where, where Isaiah says, their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Genesis 6, verse 5 says, the thoughts of man's heart were only evil all the time. 
And here is the same description for God's people. If this describes church people, can it be any better with non-church people? Turns out the Apostle Paul quotes these very verses in Romans 3 in order to paint the whole human race with the same brush. Every human alive, writes Paul, by nature, outside of Christ then, you understand. Every person by himself or herself is a sinner with thoughts of iniquity on a continual basis. It's like, it's like that fountain James wrote about this morning, that we read about this morning, but it's, it's only a fountain of brackish water. No wonder the Catechism says that we daily increase our debt to try and rescue ourselves from our own misery, to try and give God perfect obedience plus the payment of death. Well, for human beings, that's a fool's errand. And it's nothing but a dead-end street. Well, you might say, okay, that's, that's hard to take. True, but hard to take. But humans are resilient, and so we come up with a follow-up question. What about if we were to use a creature God has made? That's question 14's concern. Couldn't an animal be brought in to at least die in our place? Or what about an angel? Could we ask an angel to, to take on our punishment or, or maybe to offer up obedience in our place? We know angels are obedient, right? We know angels love God and they want to remain loyal to God, their Creator. Couldn't they help in some way? But the Bible teaches that there are two problems with looking to a creature for help. In the first place, it wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be just. And we know this on a human level, right? You don't punish your pet cat for something your child did wrong. And you don't punish your child for something the dog did. That wouldn't be right and it wouldn't solve anything. A child has to correct his bad behavior, and so mom or dad might train that child with certain discipline. Maybe it's a spanking, maybe it's a timeout, or worst of all punishments, maybe it's loss of screen time. Whoever does the crime must do the time. That's justice, right? That's what we know to be justice. So man, humans, have to pay for human sin. And the second problem is that no mere creature can suffer God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. This is the, the problem I was speaking about a bit earlier. What creature has the ability to suffer the equivalent of death? And, and now we want to just emphasize that we're talking here about eternal death. Who can endure eternal death? Not just the stopping of the heart for, for so many seconds to be declared legally dead. No, no. This is everlasting death, undergoing everlasting damnation, so wrath, from the everlasting God. Who can, who can endure that and then come back from that? 
This is what God meant when He said to Adam, on the day you eat of that fruit of the tree, you shall die. Death is not, like so many imagine today, death is not ceasing to exist. You know, mankind is going to exist forever. Either alive or dead, we will exist. But in death, everlasting death, is to experience the living, conscious torment of God's righteous anger forever and ever. Your existence, nobody's existence is snuffed out. It continues. So this is a... It blows your mind to think about, about that, how everlasting wrath can go on and on. But that's what the Bible says. What mere human then, what animal, what angel could endure that and come back from that and then go on to deliver God's people from the same punishment? I mean, it, it's maddening. It's maddening to think how deep that hole is or how high a mountain of debt this is. No creature can even begin to touch it. You can't even take one shovelful away from that mountain. It's the other way around. As humans, sinful humans, we're adding to that mountain of debt every day with our sin. We've got no ability to suffer eternal death and somehow come back and, and live and help others. We humans are stuck in the rut of our own condemnation. We've got one chance. One only chance is if our Creator can help. Creatures are out. Mankind is out. Can our Creator help? Our one and only chance is if our Creator wishes to help on top of whether He's able. And then the good news of the Scriptures, brothers and sisters, is that not only is God ready, willing, and able to help, but it's more, He has already acted to help. Where we humans ran into a brick wall at a dead end, God has opened up a new pathway to life with Him. He's done it through His special trailblazer. Isaiah is announcing this in chapter 59. As we saw, He first surveys the people, and that would include all of us as well the nature of God's people, and he finds that they are sinful to the brim. Isaiah includes himself in that confession. Verse 12, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, our sins testify against you, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. From a human perspective, the people are sinking into the mire of their own sin with no way out. It's quicksand like you've never seen. And God shares that perspective. It's not just Isaiah. Isaiah then brings us the Lord's point of view in verse 15. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. 
God saw the pitiful condition of his own people and of the human race in general, and he concluded that there wasn't a single righteous person who could rise up and in some way rescue this sinful people. Everybody was helpless in their sin. Everybody was totally useless. And so the Lord said, I'll do it. I will stretch out my hand. And by my own righteousness, I will raise up a way of salvation for this condemned and wretched people of mine. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. This has always been the gospel from Genesis through Revelation unto today. Mankind is totally helpless and rebellious, but God decides in grace, I'm going to save them anyway. Think of what happened all through Scripture. Adam and Eve cowered behind the trees in the Garden of Eden. They would have avoided God. They would have stayed far away from the Lord if they could have. But the Lord came, and the Lord called, and the Lord promised to save. Come here, Adam. Abram was worshiping the moon god in Ur of the Chaldeans. He had no thought of serving Yahweh, but the Lord came, and He called out to him, and He promised to bless all the families on the earth through Abram. Israel later was languishing in sin, chasing after idols in the days of Eli the judge. What does the Lord do? He raises up Samuel, a faithful judge, and called his people back. Later on still, Israel was drifting into the abyss of idolatry in the days of King Ahab. The Lord sends Elijah, and he called a faithful remnant back to himself. Still later, Judah was dragged off to Babylon because of her countless sins. But the Lord raised up a Daniel in Babylon, and he raised up an Ezekiel in Babylon, and he raised up an Ezra and a Nehemiah, and he sent people back. He provided a light, and he called back a remnant to salvation. This is your God, brothers and sisters. It's always this way. Mankind is always falling, and the Lord is always calling back. Always it's we humans turning our back on the Lord, and always it is the Lord holding out His arms, His hands to us. Gospel. Grace. Isaiah tells us more. Verse 17, The Lord put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped Himself in zeal as a cloak. The Lord will work salvation for His people. Surely God is powerful enough to do what needs doing. He's powerful enough to defeat sin, to defeat Satan, and He's powerful uh, enough, most importantly, to endure His very own wrath. That's what needs to be done, remember? God is infinite. God is almighty. So if there is anybody who can endure the eternal wrath of the Lord God, it's got to be God Himself. And that's what the Lord does. He comes and endures His own wrath for us. But what about the human side of things? We wonder, to, to punish God 
for the sins of humans, that wouldn't be fair either, would it? And that is correct. We already saw man must pay for man's sins. And for that reason, the living God decided to undertake the greatest miracle and the greatest act of grace of all time and lowered Himself to take on the nature of one of His creations. God satisfied or would satisfy His own justice by taking on humanity, human flesh, human nature. God became man so that as a human, He could suffer in our place for our sake. This is the totally unexpected, unheard of new trail that was blazed by our God in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus is that second Adam, the last Adam. And as an Adam, as the Adam, He could truly represent the chosen people of God in a new test of love and obedience. And He could pass that test, and He did pass that test with flying colors. And as the last Adam, He could suffer and die under the curse of the Creator to pay that terrible price that we had earned for our sin, by our sin. Jesus is that servant of the Lord that Isaiah wrote about in an earlier chapter, chapter 53. Jesus is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him not. We thought He was smitten by God and afflicted, writes Isaiah, but, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. The catechism doesn't give us His name just now, but we know His name. There is only one who is fully human and fully God, Jesus Christ the Lord. He's the only one capable of being our mediator and deliverer, our new and better representative who, who offered up perfect obedience for us and who offered up the perfect sacrifice of Himself for us. And Isaiah talks about Him too in chapter 59, verse 20, when he says, and a Redeemer will come. A Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Well, that Redeemer with a capital R, that's Jesus. He came to Zion. And even though He was rejected by Zion, yet He gave His life for Zion. Son of man, Son of God, in one unique person, filled to the brim with bottomless grace and mercy for sinners like you and sinners like me. All we need to do is what Isaiah says, turn from transgression, or as Jesus himself said, repent and believe. That's all. We receive this free gift of salvation. There's nothing you or I or any mere human could ever do to change God's verdict from condemned sinner or to change the sentence of eternal death. We've got no hope of commuting the sentence, much less 
pardoning ourselves. So let's just give that idea up entirely. Our human pride, that sinful human pride, it wants to hang on to a, a thread of its self-made dignity. It wants to make us a little bit responsible to save ourselves, but if we, if we give that oxygen, we discover only a dead end. But true faith, on the other hand, true faith bows head and heart in humility and obeys the call to come to Jesus. Remember that call? Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, come to me, and I will give you rest. So we, we go to the Lord Jesus with empty hands. We've got nothing. We've got nothing to offer. We need to be filled. And Jesus fills them. He raises us up that we may rejoice as saved sinners who have been fully pardoned by God. There's no longer punishment waiting for us. There's no longer an eternity of a living death waiting for you and me. We're already back in God's good books, back in the Father's favor. We're learning and we're yearning to love Him better as He has loved us. And so what's in store for us, what's waiting for us, is, is a greater love, a greater peace, and a greater fellowship than anything we've experienced yet. That's what's coming. All of that we have in Jesus Christ alone. So why? Why would we look anywhere else? Amen.